Well, if you're taking notes this morning, the title of the message is Stairway to Heaven. And for some of you in here, if you're a hippie or you're a little later than that, you're going, Stairway to Heaven, wait a minute, Pastor. Isn't that like a Led Zeppelin song? Is that what we're talking about in church today? Okay, so we're not we're not talking about that mystical, pagan, famous song by Led Zeppelin. We're talking about the one true stairway that is to heaven. We're talking about the gate. We're talking about the door, the way, the narrow path. We're talking about the bread of life, the light of the world. We're talking about the good shepherd, the resurrection, and the life. We're talking about the vine. The way, the truth, and the life. We are talking this morning about Jesus Christ. The one whom the Apostle John refers to as the pre-existing Word of God. The one who took on human flesh and dwelt among us. The one who gave his life as a ransom for us. The only one who is fully human and yet fully God. Jesus Christ. He and He alone is the true stairway to heaven. No one can come to the Father except through Him. So this morning, I hope you have your Bibles with you, and if you do, open up to John chapter 1. We'll be finishing that chapter this morning. If you don't have your Bibles and you want that text, it'll be inside your bulletin this morning on the left-hand side. And once you get there, if you could please stand with me in the honoring of the public reading of God's written word, John chapter 1 this morning, verses 35 through 51. I'll be reading from the ESV this morning. Starting in verse 35, we read, The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John, and you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And he found Philip, and he said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? 
you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So read God's infallible and errant and holy word. Please be seated, church. This will be the conclusion of John chapter 1. We've made it through a chapter. We're going to be together for a while, Lord willing, going through this book together. But before we get into this portion of text and study it line by line, it's important to remember what the purpose of John recording this gospel is. John recorded that, and you're going to get very familiar with this as we go through the study of John. It's in John chapter 20, verse 31. He writes why he has penned this gospel. He says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the purpose, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. That's why these things are recorded. It's not just a book. It's not just literature. It's to bring life to you and to me. So with that in mind, we'll be investigating three points as we look at these scriptures this morning. If you're taking notes this morning, the first point is going to be the sinner's perspective. And we'll see that in verses 35 through 42. The second point we're going to look at is the Savior's perspective. And lastly, we'll look at the saint's perspective. So let's go ahead and get started. We're going to see in the opening verses in this text, verses 35 and 36, that John the Baptist is with two of his disciples. Now you got to remember, let's backtrack a little bit. We've been out of this gospel for a couple weeks now. John went out baptizing people into repentance. He went out and warned the Jews of the coming wrath of God that was to come upon them if they did not return and repent. So not only has God called John the Baptist to go out and preach, but God has called the people to come and hear and has enabled them to receive the message and to turn in repentance. So in verse 36, we see Jesus appear. And John the Baptist looks and sees Jesus coming, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Now that's not the first announcement he's made about Jesus this way. Just one day earlier, if you look back in your Bible to verse 29, you'll see a day earlier Jesus made a very similar announcement. In verse 29, it says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what's going on? All of these people who have come out to follow John the Baptist, that are now labeled as his disciples, they're following him, they're now being pointed to the Lamb. To the one who is able to take away the sin of the world. They have turned in repentance, but their sin has not disappeared. They need a Savior. And John the Baptist is now pointing them, not to himself, but to Jesus. He is the way. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Savior. He is the one who has come to rescue them. He is the one who has come to reconcile them back to the Father. Jesus is the stairway to heaven. And because Jesus is central to all of this eternal life, that is the purpose of John recording this, John the Baptist now fades off in the text. 
We've seen him all through chapter 1, and you're not going to see his name appear again until a little bit in chapter 3. And then we don't see John the Baptist anymore in John's Gospel. The focus will entirely be upon Christ. It's interesting, the next time we do see John the Baptist appear, he says something very profound. John the Baptist actually knew his job was to come, prepare the way, and to point everybody to Christ. And then he was to get off the stage. And he says something very familiar. You guys probably know this in John chapter 3, verse 30. John the Baptist, speaking of Jesus, says, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. And the rest of the gospel, he's not spoken of. That's it. It is all pointing to Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So for those of you taking notes, the sinner's perspective, point number one. The first thing we're going to look, or we looked at is the sinner must be directed to Christ, to point to Christ. He is the Savior. He is the stairway to heaven. As we continue in this text, we see in verse 37, if you look in your Bibles, verse 37, that there are two disciples with John the Baptist. They heard this declaration, Behold the Lamb of God. And they had to make a decision. And what was their decision? We read there, they followed Jesus. Look, they could have heard this announcement and dismissed it. They could have heard it, it's true, and they could have dismissed it. They could have heard it, taken it to heart, and still gone their own way. There's a lot of options here for them. They could have heard it and decided, well, I'm still going to follow John the Baptist instead. I know him, and and I'm going to continue with him. But they heard it, and they chose to follow Jesus. For those of you that were here two weeks ago, Pastor Manny taught an outstanding message to have a follow me and explain what does it truly mean to follow Jesus? What does it look like, wholehearted devotion to follow Jesus? If you weren't able to hear that message online or on the church app, you can pick it up on your phone, but I encourage you to go back and listen. What does it mean to follow Jesus? So again, those of you taking notes, talking about the sinner's perspective, Yes, the sinner must be directed to Christ, but the sinner must choose to follow Christ. You see, this is the sinner's perspective. The sinner must choose to follow Christ. Back in our text, we see once the two disciples of John, they begin to follow Jesus, and we read in verse 38 that Jesus turns and questions them. And look what he asked them. He says, what are you seeking? Isn't that an interesting question? He didn't say or didn't ask, whom are you seeking? He says, what are you seeking? Now, do you think he didn't know? He's God. He's fully God, fully human, but he's fully God. He's omniscient. He knows all things. So why is he asking the question then? He's causing them to stop. And he's causing them to think. And he's questioning, what is your motive? Why did you turn to follow me? What is your motive for doing that? And they wisely decided to avoid answering that question directly. And instead they asked him, hey, where are you staying? So in other words, they're requesting, can we follow you and spend more time to inquire about these things? Can we spend more time knowing how to answer this question rightly? So you see, the sinner must know and understand why they're in need of a Savior. They must fully grasp that. They must be able to understand their sin and their rebellion towards God is storing up wrath against them. 
they need to understand there's no other way to heaven. There's no other way to be forgiven and reconciled to God. They can't earn their way into heaven. They can't do enough good deeds to earn their way into heaven. They are a sinner, and they must be rescued by a merciful and gracious Savior. He is the only way to heaven. He is the one and true staircase to heaven. So again, adding to your notes, the sinner's perspective, yes, the sinner must be directed to Christ. The sinner must choose to follow Christ. But the sinner must understand the depths of his depravity and his desperate need of a Savior. Desperate need of a Savior. There is no other way. He is the only way. And as we continue through this text this morning, after being asked, Jesus was asked, where are you staying? We see Jesus' response in verse 39. Jesus says, come and you will see. And there it is. That's an invitation from Christ to come and learn more. The invitation goes out, come and learn more. And what do they do? Well, do they really want to learn more? Do they really want to know more? Would they be more satisfied just having a superficial knowledge about Jesus? Do you know there are many that are that way? I just want to know about him, but I don't want to truly know him. I don't want to be accountable for all that. I want to make up what Jesus says and what he believes. But here, Jesus says, hey, come, learn, come and see. And they respond to Jesus' invitation and come and stayed with him for the remainder of the day. Those of you that are also reading ESV, it says that it was about the 10th hour. The Jewish time clock started about six or started at 6 a.m. So the 10th hour would be 4 p.m. That's about the time they show up. And they spend the day with Jesus, inquiring, getting to know him. And understanding what they look like in respect to him. What is their need of Jesus? So adding to our notes, we know from the sinner's perspective that the sinner must be directed to Christ. The sinner must choose to follow Christ. The sinner must understand the depths of his depravity and his desperate need of a Savior. And then we're adding, the sinner must respond to Christ's invitation to learn from him. Got to go deeper. We can't stay at a superficial knowledge. We can't just say, I know about him, but we must learn more of him. We must seek him. We must dig in and to spend time with him, to know him. And as we continue in this text in verse 40, it reveals one of the names of the two disciples that were John the Baptist. It says one of them, his name was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now for those of you that have like that question in mind as you read, says one of them was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Who's that other one? It only names one of them. Who is this other one that is there as a disciple of John the Baptist? Well, much like the rest of this gospel, the writer of this gospel, the Apostle John, doesn't mention himself anywhere. He is that other one. So he said there was that other one who was Andrew because he was the other guy. It was John and Andrew who were these disciples of John the Baptist. John, I speak of as the writer of this gospel. So in verse 41, we see that Andrew went searching for his brother, Simon Peter, and he found him to tell him some wonderful news. Now look, Andrew was just introduced to the Christ. Sam, this is the stairway to heaven. And what does he do? He immediately goes and searches for his brother. 
to tell him some great news. And he goes to his brother, and we see it in verse 41. He says, we have found the Messiah. Not just for clarity, that word Messiah is a Hebrew word. It's the same word in Greek that we see Christ. It's a Greek word, Christ. And it basically, both of them mean the anointed one. We have found the anointed one. But not only did he declare that to his brother, that wonderful news, but look at verse 42 with me. What does he do next? He takes his brother to Jesus. So he goes to him and says, we found the Messiah, grabs him and takes him to Jesus. That's what he goes out and does. And Jesus responds to Simon immediately by giving him a new name. We see there he says, you are Cephas is Aramaic word for rock. The Greek word for the same word rock is Peter. Jesus speaking Aramaic, Cephas. John recording Greek, Peter. So just clear that up so you all understand the difference between those two. You know, there's a common teaching out there that when Jesus gave Peter this new name, Peter, you're the rock, it's because his original name, Simon, meant shifting sand or a grain of sand. And I used to believe that too and tell people that. Amazing what happens when you actually research and study. Yeah, that's not true. The word Simon does not mean shifting sand or a grain of sand that Jesus was saying, you're going from being wavering all over the place to being stable in a rock. Or some would say, you're going from this little tiny grain of sand to this mighty powerful rock. There's no biblical, historical, etymological evidence that that is true at all. Somebody made it up somewhere in history, someone else started talking about it, and there we have it in church. People say it all the time. Not true. What is true, though, is Jesus said, you are rock. It's going to be through your confession that I will build this church. That I will build my church, Jesus said to him. All right, so looking back at this, Peter himself, talking about his name, if we look at 2 Peter chapter 1.1, Peter refers to himself as Simon Peter. So he's got his name Simon. He takes on the name Jesus gave him basically as his surname, his family name, Simon Peter. So finishing out point number one that we're looking at this morning, add into your notes, we see the sinner's perspective. The sinner must be directed to Christ. The sinner must choose to follow Christ. The sinner must understand the depths of his depravity and his desperate need of a Savior. The sinner must respond to Christ's invitation to learn from him. And adding to it, the sinner believes he has found Jesus and declares this to others. Go and tell others. We have found the Savior. All right, let's transition now to point number two this morning, which is now the Savior's perspective. Looking at it through the Savior's perspective, we pick up in verse 43 this morning, and we see just the opposite of what Andrew had declared earlier. See, Andrew said, we have found the Messiah. But look in verse 43. We see that Jesus on the following day goes into Galilee, and Jesus found Philip. Because he found Philip. Jesus went and found Philip. Philip didn't find Jesus. Jesus went to Galilee and he found Philip. You guys following it? Jesus found Philip. And then he called Philip to follow him. So who's the one who's doing the seeking? Jesus. It's Jesus who's doing the seeking. It's Jesus who gives the invitation to follow. As a matter of fact, Jesus said in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, he said of himself, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. A seeking Savior. That he would come and find those who are lost. 
to bring salvation and hope to those who are lost. So let's add to our notes this morning, point number two, the Savior's perspective. First thing we're going to write is the Savior seeks, finds, and saves the lost. The Savior seeks, finds, and saves the lost. Now, as we continue in this text this morning, we see Philip in verse 45. That he responds much like Andrew responded, and he went to find others to tell about Jesus. So Philip hears this good news. He's found by Christ. And he goes immediately to find Nathanael. And look at verse 45, what he tells Nathanael. He says, we have found him. Stop there. We have found him. Some of you are tracking with me. Philip declares, we have found him. Of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip excitedly tells Nathanael that he has found the Messiah. Stop for a second. That's an interesting point of view, right? Interesting point of view. Do you remember how Philip met Jesus? Look back at verse 43. Jesus went to Galilee and found Philip, not the other way around. And I think sometimes we do the same thing. I could be in my house and I could lose my keys and I could tell all my kids, my keys are gone, I need my keys, look for my keys. And of course my wife, knowing everything, will go and find my keys and bring them to me. And my kids will come to me and say, hey, you have your keys? I said, yeah, I found them. Yeah, not really. But that's the way we speak. Well, I found them. Here they are. Well, the reality, that's what's going on here. Jesus went and found Philip. And Philip's like, hey, we found him. We found the Christ. But it was the seeking Savior. It was the Lord who went. Are you seeing the difference between the sinner's perspective and the Savior's perspective? The sinner only sees what he sees. Hey, there he is. I found him. Got my keys. But the Savior's perspective is, no, I found you. I came to you. I sought you when you were lost, when you were dead in your sins and trespasses. When there was no hope, I came to you. I came. The sinner thinks from his perspective that he has found Jesus when Jesus has actually found him. Jesus said in John chapter 6, uh, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Read that again. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. You see, the Savior knows that there must be a divine intervention that must happen for someone to, quote-unquote, find Jesus. There had to be divine intervention. No one could come to Christ unless God intervenes. A miracle must take place. It's not by chance. It's not happenstance. But guess what? I found Jesus. God, out of his mercy and grace, came and found you. That's amazing. It's amazing. We previously studied in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, that in order for us to even receive Christ, to believe in him, God must first do a miracle in us by causing us to be born again. He must breathe life into us so that we who were once dead in our sins and trespasses, we who were once spiritually blind, now we can see the light of Christ. And now we can receive him. A miracle must take place. 
brother and sister, if you are here this morning, a believer in Jesus Christ, is because God has intervened. It is because a seeking Savior came to find that which was lost. And now you are fine. Praise Him indeed. Adding to our notes this morning, point number two, the Savior's perspective. We know the Savior seeks, finds, and saves the lost. Now we've added the Savior knows that divine intervention is necessary for anyone to receive and believe in Him. Divine intervention is necessary. A miracle must take place. Getting back into our text, right after Philip excitedly tells Nathaniel that he has found the Messiah, we see Nathaniel's response in verse 46. You have your Bible or your bulletin up, verse 46. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Not exactly the response Philip was looking for. Philip was looking for some excitement, maybe. Those of you that have shared and witnessed with others, you know that sometimes you get some skepticism and you get some rejection. Not everybody always clicks their heels and says, Woohoo! Thank you for sharing that with me. And here the question is can anything even good come out of Nazareth? That insignificant town? of which was looked down upon by Galileans, of whom Nathaniel was one. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's obviously not the response Philip was hoping for. Nathaniel was skeptical. And that's the same response we get from people, skepticism, a lot of people. But look at what Philip did. He doesn't get bummed out and just walk away like, oh, well. He doesn't let that discourage him at all. We see in verse 46 that he says, come and see. Stop. He said to come and see. Those words pop out to anybody? Come and see. Something very significant was just spoken. Come and see. If you look back to verses 37 39, when John and Andrew began following Jesus, Jesus told them, Come and you will see, which in Greek just says, Come and see. Let me say that again. Jesus told them, Come and see. Now we see Philip telling Nathaniel the same exact words, same terminology. Come and see. Well, guess what, church? Philip wasn't there to witness that. He didn't hear those words by Jesus. What in the world is going on? How does Philip respond with the same words that the Savior had said to Andrew and John? What is going on? God is working through Philip to Paul, Nathaniel, unto Christ. God is working through him. He's using him as a vessel. And God does the same thing through you and through me as we go and we share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. So many of us in fear say, I don't know what I'm going to say. But if we would only open our mouths, we'll walk away going, wow, what just happened? Because God will work in us and through us for his glory. Philip says the same things that Jesus said you have never heard. Come and see. God works divinely through us. So looking at the Savior's perspective again, point number two, we know the Savior seeks, finds, and saves the lost. We know the Savior knows that divine intervention is necessary for anyone to receive and to believe in Him. And now adding, the Savior's Spirit divinely works in men and women to invite people to Him. Savior's Spirit divinely works in men and women to invite people to him. And we glean from our text this morning that Nathaniel actually took Philip up on the invitation to come and see. 
And if you look at verse 47 with me, we read that Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and Jesus looks at Nathanael and says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now before this, Nathanael had never met Jesus. This is his first interaction with Jesus, and Jesus says, An Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. What was Jesus saying? This man is unlike the other Jews. This man is not a hypocrite. This man has a true, genuine zeal for God and the things of God. Jesus knew the true character of Nathanael. But Jesus had never met him face to face. So Nathanael now hears what is being spoken to him. And we see his logical response to Jesus. Look at verse 48. He asked Jesus, how do you know me? Because Jesus didn't find exactly who he was. He goes, I've never met you. How do you know me? And look at Jesus' response in verse 48. He says, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Oh, my. Could you imagine Nathaniel's mind exploding at that point? Jesus had just described his exact character without ever meeting him face to face and went on to describe exactly where he sits without ever seeing him there. Wait a minute. He described me. He knows where I sit. He's never seen me there, but he knows this. Who is this? You see, Jesus knows everything. And Jesus sees everything. You know, sometimes we are so foolish to think, if I go over here or I hide over here or I get on my phone and no one sees it, no one's going to see. No, no, we have a Savior that sees everything. We read in Hebrews chapter 14, verse 13, that no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who must give an account. Ah, no place to hide. No place to get out of his sight that he sees everything going around. That although we can dupe one another and trick one another, deceive one another, we can't do the Savior. God knows everything. So after Jesus divulges all that information to Nathaniel, the once skeptic Nathaniel now turns and is now a believer. We see in Nathaniel's appropriate response in verse 49, where he respectfully looks to Jesus and says, Rabbi, he calls him teacher. And he refers to him as the Son of God and the King of Israel. That's not what he thought before. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? What happened? You know, the scenario almost parallels that. Some of you are thinking, Doubting Thomas. I'll never believe. Unless I see the holes of his hand in this side, put my hand in there, feel him. And then Jesus appears to him after he rises from the dead. Go ahead, do it. And then Thomas does it, and he responds, my Lord and my God. A skeptic turned to believer. Christ initiated the call. Christ initiated this call to Nathaniel by using Philip to go and find Nathaniel. Christ initiated it. It's amazing. Look at verse 48 with me. We skipped over it, but look at verse 48. Jesus told him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So the question I want to ask for you this morning, did Philip call Nathaniel, or did Jesus call Nathaniel? You're like, I don't know, I don't know. He used Philip as a messenger, as a vessel, to go and to reach Nathaniel. But Christ initiated that. The seeking Savior used a man to go 
and to find and to search, but it was Jesus who initiated. Who told you the good news? Who shared it with you? Well, guess who initiated it? Jesus. Jesus sent you a messenger to bring you the good news that you could be saved, rescued, forgiven, that you could have eternal life. But Jesus initiated that. We see God uses human vessels to fulfill His will. So adding to our second point, last point this morning, to point number two, the Savior's perspective. Again, the Savior seeks to find, save the lost. The Savior knows that divine intervention is necessary for anyone to receive and believe in Him. The Savior's Spirit divinely works in men and women to invite people to Him. And the Savior knows everything and sees everything about you. And out of His mercy, out of His grace, He calls you to come to Him and follow imagine that? He knows everything about us. He's seen all that we've done. The things we thought were in secret. The things we even thought about, He knows those things. And yet, out of His grace and His mercy, He comes to rescue us. What an amazing Savior. Let's end at point number two this morning. We're going to come to our last and shortest point this morning. But don't be fooled by its brevity. It is the weightiest of the bunch. Point number three is the saint's perspective. So we had the sinner's perspective, we had the Savior's perspective, and now we'll look at the saint's perspective. And just for clarification, the Scriptures declare that every genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is referred to as a saint. Some of you come from a Catholic background and know how they have to go through sainthood and all that. That's not what we're talking about. That was made up in the church. Scripture declares you and me, if we are genuine believers in Jesus Christ, as saints of the Lord. We are saints. We have a new citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. We read this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. It says our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, let's read the final two verses of John chapter 1 this morning. John chapter 1, starting in verse 50. Jesus speaking to Nathanael says, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus looks at Nathanael and goes, Man, you can't see nothing yet. You think you've seen something because I said I saw you under the fig tree? You have seen nothing yet. If you are impressed, Jesus said, that I'm omniscient, that I know all things, wait till you find out the fullness of me being the stairway to heaven. Wait till you find out the fullness. In verse 51, the last and final verse of this chapter, Jesus was most likely alluding to Jacob's dream. Some of you, that's familiar to you. We'll look at it real quick. Genesis chapter 28, verse 12. Speaking of Jacob, it says that he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached into heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. What was there set up? A ladder. Okay, interesting, because Jesus doesn't mention a ladder. He doesn't say anything about a ladder. Instead, he mentions himself as the one who the angels will be ascending and descending upon. You see that in verse 51. Jesus is the stairway to heaven. Jesus was declaring to Nathaniel that he, the Christ, was the only way to heaven. 
And being an Israelite indeed, remember a man of integrity that Nathaniel was? Being a man who had a zeal for God, who tried to walk in his integrity, do what was right, that wasn't enough to get him into heaven. Because although he was a man of integrity, he still had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, like the rest of mankind. He needed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Nathaniel needed Jesus just like we do. He is the one who takes away the sin. We read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, that it's in Christ that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, and it's all based upon the richness of his grace, the riches of his grace. So let's add to our notes this morning in our third perspective, the saint's perspective. We're going to add the saint has received God's grace and has been forgiven of all their sin. You're a saint this morning. That's a hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But the saints received God's grace and has received forgiveness of their sins. Thinking of Nathaniel, all of his good deeds couldn't even make him righteous before God. He couldn't build up enough righteous good works to stand and say, look, I'm righteous before God now. There's nothing he could have done. He needed Jesus. He needed a Savior. We know in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, speaking of Jesus, that's for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus Christ became sin. So that in Christ, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Church, you've got to understand this. Jesus goes to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, to be the propitiation, which means he satisfied the wrath of God. The wrath that was rightly due to us, Jesus had it poured upon him. He satisfied God's wrath. But that's not all. He then rose from the dead for our justification that we would be clothed in his righteousness. What does that mean? It means we can now stand before the Father perfected. Well, Pastor, I don't feel very perfected. If you're a genuine believer, if you're a saint this morning, that's how you stand in the presence of God. Clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's an amazing and glorious truth. So add it to your notes this morning. The saint's perspective, point number three. The saint has received God's grace and has been forgiven of all their sins, and the saint has been clothed in Christ's righteousness and now stands before God in perfection. <laughs> I mean, you guys know the whole gospel, the whole thing is crazy, right? The whole idea that you would have or we have a gracious and merciful God who would come to seek and save the lost, those who have chosen to rebel against him, to do what they know they should ought not do, and yet he would come out of grace and mercy and out of love and not only forgive us, but say, there's going to be a transaction. I'm going to take all of the penalty of your sin, I'm going to put it on my son, and I'm going to take all of his righteousness, and I'm going to put it on you. But Nathaniel also needed Christ because there's only one way to the Father. Remember, he was an Israelite indeed. He was zealous for God and the things of God. But there's only one way to the Father. Jesus Christ is the only stairway to heaven. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God and there's one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. He is the only one. He is the only way. Jesus said of himself 
in John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way. He did not say, I am a way. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. Not one of many. The one and only. And he said, and no one comes to the Father except through me. The true stairway to heaven. The amazing thing is because of that, we all as believers have 24-7 access. You guys understand 24-7? You know the story down the street, 7-Eleven, why it's called that? Because they used to boast that they were open from 7 to 11. And they changed their name to 24-7 because now they're open all the time. We have access to God 24-7. All the time we can go to the throne of God, we can go boldly to God and ask for help and receive His grace in the time of need. Why? Because we've been forgiven of our sins. We've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, so we stand perfected before the Father, and now we can go to Him at any time. We read this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Brother and sister, man, there are so many times we need help. We're struggling. Things go on in life. Emotionally, we become a wreck. You know, we can look at somebody who's very famous in Scripture. You guys know who David is? David's such a wonderful example of the totality of our humanity. Because David at one point will be glorifying God and praising Him. And the next point is saying, God, what happened? Where are you? Where'd you go? God, why have you abandoned me? And he looks like this emotional roller coaster, but he keeps talking to God until he goes, Oh, God, you're near. Thank you, God, for being there. And he clings to God. He goes through all those emotions. Today we call it all kinds of stuff. We give people labels and say, You're bipolar or you're, you're clinically depressed. or you know, We see all these things in Scripture. You know how many clinical diagnoses David would have? Every single one of them. It is not a medical diagnosis. It's called being human and having to deal with life. But the reality is, as a believer in Jesus Christ, we have access to God. We have access to come and get help. Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Every moment, I need you. The saint's perspective, again, looking at point three, the saint has received God's grace and has been forgiven of all their sins. The saint has been clothed in Christ's righteousness and now stands before God in perfection. The saint, through Christ, has full access to the throne of God where they may come boldly at any time for help and grace. Anytime. And I would say that should be all the time. You got a car? Do you drive? Pray. Ask God for help. You got certain chores or duties that you're doing that you don't like to do? Pray. Thank God for help. Ask Him. You have somebody in your life who is contentious, someone who's hard to get along with, pray. Ask God for grace to help. God will pour out in abundance His grace. We are recipients of the fullness of the riches of His grace. But lastly for Nathaniel, Nathaniel would not experience eternal life except through knowing Jesus Christ. There was no other way. Jesus, in what I think is one of the most beautiful passages of all of Scripture, John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, which, if you slow down and read it, will put you into tears the way that Jesus prays for us. But Jesus, in verse 3 of chapter 17, says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, 
and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What does that mean? It means this, and it might be up on the screen for you. If you genuinely know Jesus, you genuinely know eternal life. But if you have no Jesus, you have no eternal life. That's to know Christ is to know eternal life. To know Christ is to know eternal life. Most of you know Jesus' famous words. He says this, John chapter 3, verse 16. People put up posters of it, banners everywhere. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life, both now and forever. It doesn't get taken away. It's now and forever. Let's add that. That will be our final point this morning that we're going to add to the saints' perspective. Again, looking at the saints' perspective, we know the saints received God's grace and forgiven of all their sins. We know the saint has been clothed in Christ's righteousness and now stands for God in perfection. We know the saint through Christ has full access to the throne of God where they may come boldly at any time for help and grace. And the saint has received eternal life both now and forever. You see, church, Jesus Christ is the stairway to heaven. He is the only way. There is no other way. The question is, do you know him? Not do you know about him, but do you know him? Do you know him and do you know eternal life? It does not matter if you know about him. You must know him personally. Do you know him? Have you come to him? Have you followed him? Have you repented of your sin and trusted in him and him alone? Have you? If your answer this morning is yes, then with me rejoice. Praise him. Glorify him. Demonstrate your love for him by walking in obedience to him. Bring him glory. Produce fruit. Be a fruitful bunch. But if you've yet to turn to Jesus, if you've yet to follow him, to truly know him, to know eternal life, then I urge you to do so now. To do so now. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Right now in your heart and your mind, you can cry out to God, you can repent, and you can become a child of God. If God has illuminated this truth to you, it's because a miracle has happened. He's drawing you into himself. The Bible says these things are foolishness to those who are perishing. If right now these things are not foolishness to you, it's because a divine intervention has taken place. And I urge you this morning to turn. Trust alone in Jesus Christ and what he's done on your behalf. Do it now. You know, it's interesting what Jesus said. Jesus in chapter uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 10, he says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner. One sinner who repents. That might be you today. That this morning there would be a rejoicing, a celebration, a party in heaven because one person this morning turns and repented. Do it now. I ask again, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Let's pray. Father, your word is so glorious. Your, the depth of your word is amazing. God, you allow us to mine into it and to glean 
what you would reveal to us yourself. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully human. The true stairway to heaven. Father, I pray this morning that if there be anyone in this place that, God, you are drawing unto yourself, that now would be the time, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would turn to you, cry out to you. They would repent and receive Christ. And they would follow you, and fruit would be produced in their life. Father, anyone in this place that knows about you, but hasn't chosen to come to you, hasn't chosen to follow you, that today would be the day. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Father, I pray for the rest of us who, God, you have done a miracle on our behalf. The seeking Savior has come and to save what was lost. He has found us and saved us. God, we rejoice. We thank you. Help us to walk in a manner that is pleasing to you, that brings glory and honor to your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name.